Let's turn tonight to Revelation chapter 21, and uh, we're going to read verses 9 through 27, middle of the chapter to the end of the chapter. This section actually goes to verse 5 of the next chapter, but we won't read, we won't get that far tonight, so we won't read that. But uh, let's read verses 9 through 27. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal-clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels and names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square with its length, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls, 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacent, and the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean And no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray together. Father, uh, these words are really beyond comprehension to us. Lord, it is so difficult for us to even imagine the glory of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. And yet, Lord, we know that is our eternal dwelling place. It's not because we are worthy in any way, but we are the recipients of your grace. And 
So, Lord, uh, we thank you so much for that. Lord, we look forward to that great day. And until then, we want to be faithful for you. So, Lord, help us in that. And, Lord, as we think about the glories of heaven, help us to uh, not just to daydream of those days, but to understand that uh, we have work that needs to be done here for your purpose. And, Lord, help us to be about that work. Help us to be redeeming the time because the days are evil. And, Lord, even more so as we see the day approaching. So, Lord, we uh, pray that you would help us tonight to uh, worship. Lord, as we come to you, that our hearts would just be filled with gratitude and praise to you. And, Lord, tonight we, we just lift up these great needs in our body and continue to pray for Bob and we pray for Barb's daughter. And, Lord, we, we know that these are things that are really beyond our control. And they are under your sovereign control. And so, Lord, we commit them to you and we trust them to you. And so, Lord, we thank you that uh, you provide the grace that we need to endure these things. And, Lord, I just pray that you draw really near tonight to Barb and to her family and to, to Bob and his family. And, uh, Lord, that you would just sustain uh, those who are in need. Lord, I pray tonight for Johanna and uh, this uh, baby. And, and Lord, we just pray that uh, your will would be done there and you would uh, do a great work. So, Lord, we, we trust you with all these things. And we know that uh, they're in your control. So we ask them in Christ's name. Amen. Tonight we are looking at the eternal city of God. And we're going to, we're getting very close to getting to the end of our study of this great book. We, we really have about three weeks left in it. And we're going to spend two weeks in this section, which goes from chapter 21, verse 9, to 22, verse 5. And then we're going to devote the last week on the rest of chapter 22. The last two weeks, we focused on the outline of the new world order that is given for us in chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. And the rest of this book really is an expansion of that material. The description of the New Jerusalem that I'm calling the eternal city of God goes from chapter 21, 9 down to 22, 5, as we said. That's what our outline is going to cover, although my goal tonight is to get down to verse 21. We'll see how that goes. We've read it. Let's walk through it. Now, the first main point in the outline covers this entire section. And so the first thing we will look at tonight is uh, a look at the city. The New Jerusalem, which was introduced to us in chapter 21, verse 2, is now given in a much greater description. And we've already seen this kind of pattern in the Revelation a number of times. Something will get introduced... And then later, it will get more fully developed, like the way in which Babylon was introduced first in chapter 16, verse 19, and then was fully developed in chapter 17, verses 1 through 19, uh, actually all the way to chapter 19, verse 10. Now, as we've already seen, the new Jerusalem will be the capital city of the new world and the eternal state. This is really the essence of heaven, although the new heavens and the new earth will also be a vital part of that. 
The new Jerusalem is the Father's house that Jesus mentioned in John 14, 1 through 3. You may remember that passage. There, Jesus told his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Well, the new Jerusalem is that place that is being prepared for us. It is the current heaven where those who die in Christ go today. But it will descend from heaven into the new heavens and the new earth after the days of the millennial reign of Christ. And even though we only get a small glimpse of it here, what we get here is a description that really boggles the mind. As we're going to see, the limits of human terminology are employed to describe something that none of us can even imagine. As MacArthur points out, because it is the capital city of heaven and the link between the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem is central to the vision and is described in far more detail than the rest of the eternal state. Now, for the sake of outline, we're going to take this first main point in five parts. And the first thing we see here is the spokesman. The spokesman. So look with me at verse 9. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, the first thing to note here is how similar this language is with that that we saw in chapter 17, verse 1. In fact, it is possible that this is the very same angel that we saw in 17.1. Steve Gregg notes that this provides a structural link deliberately placing the harlot in juxtaposition with the bride. Alan Johnson says here the parallelism with 17.1 is clearly deliberate. The bride, the wife of the lamb, contrasts with the great prostitutes. I mean, go back to chapter 17 and look at verse 1 for just a moment. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. This is an unmistakable, unmistakable parallelism. It is an obvious contrast of the bride and the harlot. The nymphane, the bride, stands in conspicuous contrast with the pornais, the harlot. This is most likely the reason why this vision is introduced by one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. The obvious point that is to be made here is that you cannot live in both cities. You have to choose which city it will be for you. And this goes along with the theme of the entire Bible, that there are only two categories of people. You're either saved or lost, 
redeemed or condemned a child of God or a child of Satan. And the structural connection here is the fact that in chapter 17, verse 3, we read where John was carried away in the Spirit into the wilderness to see the harlot. Here in chapter 21, verse 10, he is carried away in the Spirit to a great high mountain to see the bride. There's another obvious contrast between these two. As Greg writes, the bride city is elevated upon a mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, Psalm 48.2, while the harlot city is situated in a barren wasteland. So at many points we see the contrast between the harlot and the bride. Now, as we've already seen, the concept of the bride at this point includes not only the church, but all the saints of all the ages. And these are all those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are now inhabitants of this holy city. Not only is she referred to here as the bride, but also as the wife of the Lamb. This is because at this point, the marriage has been formalized. Back in uh, chapter 19, verse 7, we read, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Now, there are some Bible scholars who have taken this description of the bride as a further detailing of the millennium. This is done primarily because there are certain details given here that seem to fit better with the millennium than with the eternal state. But without giving all the details of that debate, let me just say that the problems of taking that position are greater than taking the view that this is describing the eternal state. And so I personally believe this is definitely talking about the eternal state. There are some difficulties both ways, if you really study it thoroughly. But it is best to take this in its chronological order in the context of the depiction of the new Jerusalem and the new heaven and the new earth. And by the way, the phrase, the Lamb, here becomes increasingly more prominent as we move to the end of this book. It occurs seven times in just 24 verses. The Lamb of God becomes the central focus of this entire section. But a second thing that we see in this section is a synopsis. In verses 10 and 11, we have a general synopsis or summary of the coming of the bride city. Look at verse 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And we've already seen this issue of John being carried away in the spirit. This is how John has witnessed most of the visions in this book. John MacArthur writes, when he received the visions that comprise the book of Revelation, The aged apostle was a prisoner of the Romans on the Isle of Patmos, remember. He was transported from there 
in an amazing spiritual journey to see what unaided human eyes could never see. And John's visions were not dreams, but spiritual realities like those Paul saw when he was also caught up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. However, in this case, John is carried away by the Spirit to a great mountain where he can get a good look at the New Jerusalem. And once again, it is referred to as coming down out of heaven from God. Although there are some who have spiritualized this and have not taken it literally, Mounts writes, the, de- the descent of the city is a real event within John's visional experience that previews a real future event that will usher in the eternal state. The city coming down out of, out of heaven from God is a literal reality, and it should be taken that way. Back in chapter 21, verse 2, we see the same phrase being used by John, but there he adds the phrase, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. In verse 11, we see that the attire of the bride is that she is dressed in the glory of God. Look with me at verse 11. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. The word for glory there is doxa. It means brightness. This is the very same concept as the Old Testament use of the word Shekinah. Steve Gregg writes, The Shekinah that once rested upon the temple in the earthly Jerusalem has now come to alight upon the new city of God. Johnson explains that the city has a brilliance, foster, light bearer given to it by God's presence that appears as a crystal clear jasper. And as we see here, everything in the New Jerusalem is crystal clear so that the glory of God can shine throughout it. And as someone once said, the reason you can see everything in heaven and see through everything in heaven is because there's nothing to hide. One of the greatest joys of heaven is that we will no longer have to battle sin ever again. Now, the word for jasper here is the word iaspis. It's mentioned three times in this chapter. In chapter 4, verse 3, Jasper is used to describe God Himself. In this world, Jasper is an opaque quartz mineral that is found in a variety of colors, commonly red, brown, green, yellow, blue, and black, but seldom white. However, its use here is obviously different. Although some scholars believe this will be an opal, Most Bible scholars see it as a diamond. Of course, that is not quartz, but crystalline carbon. One scholar wrote, the principle, um, excuse me, the participle crystallizante, which literally means crystal clear, requires that it have a starry 
diamond-like effulgence. I mean, just imagine, if you will, heaven as one enormous diamond with the very glory of God shining through it. We can't even imagine that, can we? But whether this is a diamond or not, we know it is certainly crystal clear. And the glory of God is certainly shining in and through it. And by the way, as we go through this section, people often ask, will heaven really be made of gold and pearls and precious stones, etc.? My belief is that John uses the highest human terms that he can possibly employ to describe what really cannot be described. I mean, how do you describe a city that is filled with the very glory of God? How do you describe that? And I believe this will be a literal city, and it will be made of literal materials, but the materials that it is made of may be something that we have not yet seen or experienced. But John saw it. Another by-the-way here is that Dr. Thomas was extremely helpful in this section of Scripture, more than anyone else that I read. He says the glory of God here is the dazzling splendor of God that is described in many passages of Scripture. But he says this is not just a divinely caused splendor. It is the splendor of the very presence of God Himself, the Shekinah. His very presence dwells in the holy city, which is the bride of the Lamb. That she possesses the glory of God is the most striking feature of this city. MacArthur writes, To John, the heavenly city appeared like a giant light bulb. With the brilliant light of God's glory streaming out of it, the city appeared as one gigantic precious stone. Verse 23 tells us the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The prophet Isaiah also foresaw this great city. He wrote in Isaiah 60, verse 19, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, But you will have the Lord as an everlasting light and your God for your glory. The city's brilliance is, of course, the result of the divine presence of God. And it's interesting here that the only other place where the word foster is used is in Philippians 2.15, which says that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights, there's your word, in the world. Listen, that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to shine His glory in this dark world. Well, we'd better move on. A third thing that we see here is the superstructure. At this point, John begins an extended depiction of the exterior of the city. Look with me at verse 12. 
It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Before we examine this, I just love what Dr. Thomas wrote in his commentary on this section. Even though it is long, I'm going to read two entire paragraphs because he really nails this whole issue of whether we should take this literally or not. He says, The dimensions and layout design of the Jerusalem descending from heaven are an accommodation to finite minds. So a complete comprehension of the new creation is not the the expected result. That new heaven and new earth will exceed human understanding because it will be the handiwork of an infinite God. It will be beyond what any person has ever experienced. Yet the information conveys a picture designed for finite minds of this existence. And so it should not be written off as totally symbolic It does give architectural information about the city, and it is not merely theologically symbolic of the fulfillment of all God's promises. She is a real city with a material existence, arguments to the contrary notwithstanding. To hold that literally there never was, is not now, and never will be such a city as one scholar does flies in the face of the language of the text, he says. He continues, This is not to say that the tangible aspects of the city's architecture are without symbolic meaning. The abstractions embodied in the physical features of the city are strikingly clear. John has conveyed what he saw as far as words are capable of doing so. His visional experience has taken him where his readers cannot go. He actually saw what he describes accurately under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, though some of the details, for example, the gold that differs from anything on this present earth, are beyond present human comprehension. And because the nature of the city stretches human understanding to its limits, the wiser course is to accept the details of the description at their face value as corresponding to the physical characteristics attributed to her. In other words, what he's saying is, these are human words trying to describe the unimaginable. And I'll just add here a section from MacArthur's commentary, he says human language is inadequate to fully describe the unimaginable magnificence of the believer's indescribable eternal home. Unwilling to take the language of Scripture at face value, many seek for some hidden meaning behind John's description. But if the words do not mean what they say, Who has the authority to say what they do mean? Abandoning the literal meaning of the text leads only to baseless, groundless, futile speculation. And the truth about the heavenly city is, is that it is more than is described, but not less or different. 
from what is described. Well, I just wanted to throw that in. That's free of charge. Back to verse 12. We see here the walls of this great city. The wall is described as being great and high. And while some people have struggled with the fact that the city has a wall around it, in light of the fact that there will be no sin in heaven, and therefore no enemies to keep out of the city, I think it is better to simply take this as a reminder of our eternal security. The twelve angels stationed at the twelve gates simply serves to reinforce the concept of eternal security. And it's interesting that Isaiah 60, 18 says, You will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. And Zechariah 2, 5 says, For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. So the Lord himself will be our ultimate protection. Again, Dr. Thomas is helpful here. He writes, the wall around the city is sizable, making it one of the more conspicuous features of the city. The purpose of the wall is not to help defend the city because there's no enemy to defend against. It rather is a constant reminder of the eternal security of the city's inhabitants. Verse 18 will inform us that the walls also are made of jasper. So they too will reflect the glory of God. The gates here are actually gate towers. They're referred to 11 times in these two chapters. The fact that the gates have the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel on them celebrates for all eternity God's covenant relationship with Israel, the people of the promises, the covenants, the scriptures, and the Messiah. As Wolverd writes, the 12 tribes refers to an eschatological purpose for the elect Jewish people. This is significant. God still has future plans for Israel. The prophet Ezekiel also described the 12 gates, and one was for each of the 12 tribes of Israel, although his are connected to the millennial Jerusalem in Ezekiel 48. But let's go on. Look at verse 13. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. This is similar to the way the twelve tribes of Israel camped around the tabernacle in the wilderness. And it is similar to the allotment of the tribal lands around the millennial temple in Ezekiel 48. Verse 14 adds, And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Alan Johnson says, Theologically, it is significant that he brings together the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles of the Lamb, and yet he differentiates between the two. Dr. Thomas says this serves explicit notice of the distinct roles of national Israel in this eternal city in fulfillment of their distinctive role in history throughout the centuries of their existence. He says the distinction shows the wrongness of identifying the 12 tribes 
in chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, with the church. Covenant theology. He says the mention of the twelve apostles here shows the distinctive role of the church in the New Jerusalem, just as the mention of the twelve sons of Israel distinguishes the role of national Israel. Here we see national Israel and the church coming together in the eternal state. Dr. Thomas adds the continuity from the twelve sons of Israel and the twelve apostles is not the teaching of this passage but the dual election of Israel and the church. The words clearly show that God has an eschatological role for both peoples. Beyond dispute, he says, this description of the bride city separates believers among Israel from believers in the church and in a symbolic way assigns the two groups separate roles in the new creation. Concerning verse 14, Dr. MacArthur writes, Those stones commemorate God's covenant relationship with the church, of which the apostles are the foundation stones, Ephesians 2.20. At the top of each gate was the name of one of the tribes of Israel, and at the bottom of each gate was the name of one of the apostles. And thus the layout of the city's gates pictures God's favor on all his redeemed people, both those under the old covenant and those under the new covenant. The number 12 represents the whole group of apostles, aside from the issue of whether this number includes Judas Iscariot, Matthias, or Paul. We could debate that. But the attempts to line align the stones of verses 19 and 20 with the 12 apostles really is pointless and futile. This is just a representation of the totality of the the apostles of Christ. Well, let's see if we can get one at least one more point. I'm not doing very well. Notice the next element is the size. The size Look with me at verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Now, what is the purpose for measuring the city? Well, there are different opinions on this. Johnson says the act of measuring signifies securing something for blessing to preserve it from spiritual harm or defilement. MacArthur points to the similarity to the measuring of the millennial temple in Ezekiel 40. Uh, 48, and the tribulation temple in chapter 11, verse 1. He says the significance of all, all these measurements is they mark out what belongs to God. It's a way of showing what belongs to God. Card takes a more practical route. He says the angel's purpose is to measure the city and to give John information he could not discern from his direct vision. How big is this thing? Peter Wolf makes an interesting observation. He says, the measuring shows that the discourse is of something real. This is a literal city. And that the city is not to be resolved into mere thought or imagination. This is not symbolic. Something literal. The phrase, the city, is a comprehensive term and includes all of her gates and walls. 
What is the result of the measurement? Verse 16, the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its walls 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Interestingly, the city is a perfect cube about 1,500 miles in each direction, depending on the exact length of a stadium. But the word for square in verse 16 is the word tetragonos. Uh, This is a word that was used to describe a cube-shaped stone used for building purposes. The city is amazingly vast in size. In comparison to something we are familiar with, it has been calculated that the New Jerusalem will be about the same size as the moon. MacArthur quotes Morris who says, Were that city to be superimposed on the present-day United States, it would extend from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico and from Colorado to the Atlantic Ocean. Now, some people have had a hard time believing the size of this city. But as Dr. Thomas explains, though staggering to the human mind, a city 1,500 miles high and 1,500 miles on each side is no more unimaginable than a pearl large enough to serve as a city gate or gold that is transparent as glass. The prophet is struggling to express the vastness of the city through language accommodated to this creation. And the fact that the city is shaped like a cube fits well with the fact that the Holy of Holies in the temple was also a perfect cube. Steve Gregg says, It is important to note that the city's cube shape was also the shape of the Holy of Holies. And since John sees no temple in the city, we may, simp- we may imply that the whole city is the temple, or more specifically, it is the Holy of Holies. It is the place of the glory of God. Now, although some have tried to say this city is the shape of a pyramid, because the pyramid was the primary architectural design of most of ancient civilization, there's really no justification for that. The text clearly says that all directions are exactly the same in length. And so the size, it's 1,500 miles each direction. It must be a cube. In verse 17, the wall is said to be 72 yards. That's 216 feet. But it's not clear whether that is its height or its width. Uh, To be honest, I'm not sure which it is. But to me, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Since we know that the walls are made of jasper, if this is the width, that is a lot of crystal clear jasper for the glory of God to shine through. If it is the height, that will be an incredible sight. And then, as if to emphasize that these are literal dimensions and not just some mystical, symbolical idea, he says that these dimensions are given according to human measurements, which the New American Standard says are also angelic measurements. Now, the way this is worded in the Greek may not mean that human 
and angelic measurements are the same, but that the angel used human measurements. Johnson says it should be interpreted by man's measurement, which the angel was using. Dr. Thomas says the expression means that an angel did the measuring, but followed human standards in doing so. Well, I was going to try to get to verse 21 tonight, but I didn't quite make it. You better stop right here. What a city that will be. What a glorious, glorious, eternal home we will have. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you so much for this description. And we can't even imagine. And yet, Lord, we know your word declares this is our eternal home is where we will spend eternity. And Lord, it's, it's just hard to even comprehend a city like this with your glory shining through it. Lord, we long for that city. We long for that day. And yet we know there's work to be done here. So help us while it is still day, while there's still opportunity for the gospel, help us to be about your work. And uh, Lord, we pray for the needs of the body we continue to ask that you would intervene on behalf of these people that are in great need. And Lord, we thank you for your care for us. And we ask that you bless us this week and be with us in Jesus' name.